Hi, and welcome back to another interview here at Cytel. Today we'll feature Ursula Gazarek. And Ursula, I'd like to welcome you to our conversation. We'll be speaking about rare disease development, specifically innovations and in trial designs and implementations that can yield a greater degree of success in the rare disease area. Ursula, uh, how are you? Hello, Mike. Nice to meet you here via phone and talk about rare diseases. Yes, and Ursula, um, of course, you're with the Statistical Consulting Group uh, here at Cytel, and you have a, a range of experiences in helping sponsors to achieve uh, better trial designs that can improve their clinical research results. So, Ursula, maybe you might want to talk just a little bit about your background and how uh, you work in the Statistical Consulting Group here at Cytel. Well, actually, I have been doing a lot of different things for a statistician. I started <clears throat> actually in the interplay between statistics and machine learning, uh, doing my PhD in uh, complexity reduction in high-dimensional data spaces and continuing from my first job at uh, Roche Diagnostics, being in the biomarker discovery field, doing metabolomics, proteomics, and then also um, biomarker assay development. And then I went to uh, Unilever, and there I was in the beginning of clinical trials in food, skin, um, uh, oral. <laughs> so being uh, responsible for a wide variety of clinical trials, not in really the pharma field, but actually in a fast-moving consumer goods study. Uh, uh, Environment. Would that so, be more in the nutrition side? The nutrition side. It's not. It's, it's actually. Um, it's more in the personal uh, care domain that they do clinical trials, but the the more pharma-like clinical trials are obviously in the uh, foods domain, uh, when you really want to have a claim on uh, some health benefit from a, a food product. So you have a right, wide range of experience when it comes to the various therapeutic areas, including uh, skin. And sometimes we forget that the, uh, the human skin is the, is the largest organ of the uh, of the human body. Yes, and people suffer a lot if the skin is not in a healthy condition. Of course, of course. And so, from Unilever, how did how did you uh, did you move on from there? Well, this continued smoothly when I moved to Cytel and then starting to uh, support um, sponsors from different size pharma companies. But uh, for the rare diseases, for me, uh, it was mostly quite small companies that had a very interesting um, molecule or uh, therapy which they wanted to um, provide evidence that they actually help in a rare disease. So within Cytel, I have meanwhile uh, several projects where I supported uh, people in their clinical development for rare diseases. And, and what have you learned from that experience with the rare disease development from the developers? How would, how would you characterize them? Well, I think the... Um, the very good part of rare disease uh, development is that actually the regulatory bodies are very supportive. So there is an interest both from the FDA and from the EMA to get good 
new products fast on the market for rare diseases. So um, in the the interaction with the um, uh, authorities, I found to be very pleasant because very supportive. So especially with the uh, EMA in the European uh, area, because I'm based in Europe, so I predominantly have contact with the EMA. Um, so this positive attitude towards the rare disease development, I find a very nice uh, area to work because innovative trial designs are not only frowned upon, but actually you, you get support in trying out new things in case this really helps bring in a new product faster to the market. So Ursula, it's safe, it's safe to say that the regulatory agencies and your a particular familiarity with the EMA uh, that they have been more willing to uh, consider more innovative approaches in the rare disease area. That, that's been your experience too? Yes, they were actually supportive in doing that. Of course, they um, uh, they want to, sh to know that type 1 error control in the confirmatory and uh, uh, study 3 or 2, 2B23 um, that the type 1 error control is really done. They want to, uh, this to be uh, shown and proven. But other than that, it's not like, oh, we have never seen something like that. We don't do it. It's it's really, oh, this looks uh, uh, rather complex. Please explain. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it, yeah, there there's a positive uh, uh, attitude towards that because uh, everyone knows to bring these things fast to the market, if you're in a rare disease, uh, you cannot really have... A, a, a recruitment of too many people. So you have to make your decisions um, very carefully with getting all the information out of uh, any patient that you can uh, recruit into a clinical trial because you don't have so many. I was going to say, at, at the, one of the advantages of an, of an adaptive trial is that each subject, shall we say, has greater value. Um, I, I think the, the main advantage really is that uh, you do not stick too long to a wrong decision. Yeah. <laughs> so in the end, it's not really like if, if you would make uh, with a non-adaptive approach only correct decisions, actually you're, you would need less people. Hmm. But because you have so many uncertainties um, uh, in rare diseases. So one of your problems is not only that you have few people from which you can recruit to your clinical trial. No, but you st also start with much less knowledge as compared to the uh, non-rare diseases. So you do not really know uh, what is the good endpoint that I should measure in the people that is sensitive to the changes? You do not really know what the effect size in this endpoint really is. Uh, you don't know about much about its variability, and you may have subgroups in your rare disease even um, which react better or worse to the treatment. And all these things you have much less knowledge on as compared to a non-rare disease. So if you would start with the same strategy, you would choose an endpoint, 
choose an effect size and uh, a variability around that effect size in some group and all of these things would be with a high uncertainty and thus your whole planning may be completely wrong. And you cannot really afford going into a clinical trial pretending you would know a lot of things that you actually do not know. And thus, starting with plausible assumptions, but allowing the trial to adapt to to the learning that you do with each new patient or in certain uh, uh, interim decision-making processes, to adapt to the continuous learning that you do along the trial helps you prevent going for a long time in the wrong dis uh, wrong direction. And that would really be foolish because in adaptive clinical trials, Uh, for rare diseases, the slow recruitment is actually an advantage for the adaptivity. They are a very natural choice for a rare disease indication. So, Ursula, I was going to ask you, you really covered the regulatory uh, perspective, but from the sponsor's point of view and their stakeholders, What is it about an adaptive approach that, that holds promise? Well, one thing that I would recommend everyone uh, to look into is on the CITEL pages, there are the 10 steps um, for adaptive designs, the 10 steps that you should consider before you start going adaptive, which are from Jim Bolognese and a colleague, um, because they are very nice. And the very first question uh, is whether or not the time between the interim uh, observation for adaptation and the enrollment of the last patient, whether there's enough time between those. If you have a very fast recruitment then uh, and you need a long time, like a survival endpoint to observe the endpoint, then typically it wouldn't make much sense. It would only make sense to go adaptive if you would potentially uh, have a early biomarker which you could use for interim decision making then it makes sense again going adaptive becomes advantageous beyond rare diseases um, in situations a where you have this uncertainty on certain uh, uh, um, important decisions like uh, the, the population like the endpoint like the effect size and the variability in the endpoints. When you have a considerable amount of uncertainty in any of those, it makes a lot of sense to do a blinded sample size reestimation or an interim uh, uh, decision like in a group sequential design where you just check your basic assumptions and you uh, can go the one way or the other based on some interim analysis. It also helps sometimes for those uh, smaller companies that have investors to convince the investors to spend some money on this first step because they wouldn't have to spend all the money immediately without any intermediate confirmation that uh, uh, the investment is is well. So um, it also helps spending money uh, with less risk. And Ursula, that sounds like that's a that's a motif that connects the ad advantages from all the stakeholder point of views is that 
an adaptive design, adaptive approach can help to accumulate knowledge that can be used for better decision-making about the uh, adaptation of the trial design itself. Yes, uh, and the less uh, firm knowledge you have before you start with your trial, the more it becomes looking attractive. Yeah, hence the well-match, the, the good fit, if you will, between uh, most rare disease uh, development efforts and an adaptive approach because so often in rare disease, as you said, you don't have the depth of historical knowledge. You don't have the, the depth of data from previous research that you might in other therapeutic areas. Is, is that a good way to characterize? That's a very excellent way to characterize. <laughs> what advice, what, what would you say to sponsors in the rare disease area who are considering an adaptive approach or, or what their best strategy is for, for development? It's actually not that much different from the advice that I would uh, um, give to any other uh, drug development. It is always, first of all, look very closely into the data that you already have and make, make the best use of that. So also making a lot of use of uh, the pharmacometric information that you may have uh, uh, and what you have learned from the animal studies to transport that into good decision-making already for the first uh, uh, other studies. So that's no different. Same actually for the adaptivity. Um, no matter what you do, Adaptivity is just one choice you have to make during your uh, drug development, whether or not it makes sense for your specific drug development. Once you have decided that your trial is would or your drug development would be best supported with some adapt, uh, uh, adaptation in the trial, um, I think the main advice is really go into discussions with the authorities um, as soon as possible to make sure that uh, what you have in mind um, is being supported by them. Yeah, always is. I was going to ask what what what, what types of questions? What are they looking for at the FDA in terms of validating or? their acceptance of a, a more innovative trial design and approach? Well, um, if your trial is uh, designed to provide uh, solid evidence for efficacy, um, so being a pivotal or a confirmatory trial, then the of utmost importance is that you show that you are, um, uh, that your type 1 error control is done. In with the whole adaptivity, that the adaptivity does not lead to um, too many false positives outcomes of your trial. So that's a statistically, um, well, there's a lot of statistical methodology out and all the adaptive steps are still provide, uh, uh, um, done in a way that your type 1 error control is still um, solid. Um, then next to that, obviously, you need to do um, simulations to show that also the chances of success for your trial are in good shape. 
so that the power is good, so that you really get the most information out of and enough information out to make a solid decision also in, sen in the sense that if there is an effect that you really have a chance to find it with the trial. That predominantly will be done with simulation. And those, sim and those simulations are, are, are validated with the, with the, your, your counterparts, the, the statistical peers at the FDA or the EMA? They want to see the calculations and they will check on that. Ah. Yeah, they want to see. And, uh, well, I think they, there is a sophisticated side of uh, the authorities as well that can uh, see whether or not these calculations are done in a solid way. It sounds like you speak from experience. <laughs> I've just uh, had a very nice uh, um discussion and uh, uh, defense of a very innovative trial design with the EMA uh, September this year. And it was uh, the, the sponsor with five persons and me and another consultant uh, or two other consultants in one row. And on the other side, it was... Uh, about 40 people from various uh, uh, European uh, countries and the EMA posing us a lot of questions. And they challenged. Oh, they challenged oh. each single step uh, from the pharmacometric, from the pharmacology side, and then very many questions also regarding the complexity of the trial because... We have almost everything. Everything is adaptive in this trial. So we have a, a population enrichment. We have uh, a sample size reestimation. We have a dose selection. So there were a lot of steps. Mm -hmm. And they really wanted to know that um, the planning was thorough, thorough and that we have thought of all aspects that need to be thought of to uh, not only ensure the statistical properties, but also ensure that we don't introduce an operational bias into the whole process and that we do the right decision at the right time point. Yeah, it, I think that illustrates how uh, comprehensive the considerations need to be beyond just the statistical uh, considerations with a trial, a more innovative trial, but also to think about what the implementation realities are going to be. So it sounds like you, you also have to be able to defend the operational and implementation characteristics of the trial, not just the statistical methodologies. Yeah, I think the, what the uh, authorities want to see is that you have been thinking of these uh, uh, um, operational um, aspects of running an adaptive trial and they must get the impression that you know how to handle uh, um, the blinding how to ensure that there is no yeah no bias introduced by people um, inferring what has been seen in the interim uh, decision making process and thus then uh, doing their things differently in the next stage of the trial and Obviously, this requires um, a good data management, first of all, and firewalls between the people that are allowed to uh, know everything and those people that uh, shall, uh, shall remain blinded until the end of the trial. Well, 
Ursula, this has been a, an interesting conversation for me to learn more about some of the challenges, particularly to rare disease development and, and how statistical innovations are making a difference and what lies in the, in the, in the near future for rare disease development using more innovative approaches. And we can learn more about your appearances and the contributions that you're making to the science by going to Cytel.com's events page. That's just Cytel.com backslash events. So that's one place that uh, those listening can go to to hear about your schedule and advances that are being made in better trials, better clinical results for all the stakeholders, the sponsors, investors, the scientists engaged in the medical community, but maybe perhaps especially the patients themselves. So thanks a lot, Mike. And thank you, Ursula. Thanks for joining me.